Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police homicide file. It's a murder from 1973. The longer a case goes cold, the harder it is to solve. Maybe if it was solved, if they could find out who did it, um, it would help. We're hoping that someone saw something, knows something, remembers something that might help us finally find justice for. Welcome to the Searching for Closure podcast. I am your host, Sean McGregor. I've had a lot of people ask me where I got the idea for this podcast, how this podcast started, how I even heard about Tina Davison. Well, I've been wanting to start a new podcast for a while now. I'm a big fan of true crime podcasts. I'm also a huge fan of true crime TV shows. Last year, I was off work for a couple months with an injury, and I binge-watched every single episode of Forensic Files. That's over 400 episodes. One of my other favorite shows is Cold Case Files. But there aren't really a lot of serial cold case podcasts. Mostly, each episode is dedicated to one case and then forgotten about and moved on to the next case in the next episode. I wanted to do something different. See, I believed if enough research and investigation could be done, one case could move between multiple episodes and a single case could be devoted entirely to a whole podcast. So I decided to start my own. Uh, I wanted to do a local case. I've lived in or near Racine, Wisconsin my entire life. So I googled Racine Unsolved Murders and there weren't a lot. Racine isn't a huge metropolis. In 2016, the population was only 77,571. I mean, compared to its neighbor to the north, Milwaukee, which had 595,047 people in 2016, Racine's uh, pretty small. But after a small amount of Googling, I found Tina Davison's story. I read an article on theindustries.com and a short discussion on websleuths.com, and that was about all I could find. I didn't even know if I was going to find enough on this case to even do one episode, let alone you know, an entire season or an entire you know, full podcast about this. But I googled and I googled for a couple weeks, and... One night, I went back to the The Industries article and scrolled down to the comments section. And there, for the first time, I noticed a comment. Someone named Cindy posted on December 13th, 2017 at 11.56 p.m. And they said, quote, I have info on Tina Davison. The admin responded that night at 12.08 and said, quote, I would love to hear your information. But 
there was no response. So I left my own response to Cindy. I explained that I was working on a podcast about Tina and asked if she could please contact me or anyone else that had details to please reach out to me. Uh, About an hour later, the admin responded and asked if I saw the thread about Tina on the Racine History Facebook group. I had not. I didn't even know about it. I didn't know that Racine had a Facebook group dedicated to its history. So I went on Facebook, I searched it, I found it, and it was a closed group. So I sent a request to join the group, and I went to bed. The next morning, uh, I was accepted into the group and scrolled down through the many, many posts regarding the history of Racine. And there, on March 27th of last year, 2017, there was a post about Tina Davison. And there was almost 90 comments. Some of the comments were pretty wild. Lots of names were being dropped as suspects. And uh, I really felt like I hit the mother load. To me, this podcast just became real. I knew I had plenty of information. But some of the messages were pretty far-fetched. Almost like it could be an episode of Fargo or Sons of Anarchy. Drugs, murder for hire, killers who were missing fingers, biker gangs, corrupt police officers. Some of it was pretty out there. But some messages actually seemed factual and pretty plausible. One claim was that the killer left no DNA and that Tina was not raped. When I first read about this crime, one of the first things that popped into my head was that Tina had to be raped before she was stabbed. It, it only made sense. I mean, she was found nude. So if she had not been raped, why did the killer remove her clothes? Did they remove her clothes before or after the murder? The police said that she was not murdered on the beach, but she was dragged there after death to be disposed. So, where were her clothes? Did the police ever find them? Did the killer remove them to hide any traces he left behind? I mean, DNA wasn't a thing in 1973. That didn't happen until around 1986, but blood hair, fibers, and other things could have been left on her clothes, especially if Tina had been inside the killer's vehicle. Perhaps the killer cut himself while stabbing Tina. Stabbing someone 61 times is a violent, brutal act. It's more than likely the killer's hand could easily slip on the knife handle due to the large amount of blood, and he could have cut himself, mixing his blood in with Tina's blood you know, on her clothing if she was murdered while she was still dressed. He'd have to take off her clothes and take them with him to conceal any of that evidence. Another person claimed she was going to her friend's house on Virginia Street after she returned the bag of clothes to her friends on Quincy Avenue. That was a question I had had from the beginning. Where was this sleepover house? I mean, she never made it there. The newspaper article I read said she was hitchhiking to Washington Avenue, which is only a mile or so away. Her friends said that Tina wouldn't have hitchhiked to Virginia Street because of how close it was. So, pulled out my phone, 
hopped on my Google Maps app and I checked for myself. From Tina's house on 20th Street, it's roughly seven blocks or a 15-minute walk to her friend's house on Quincy Avenue. From the friend's house on Quincy Avenue, it was almost two miles to the crime scene off of Main Street. That's a 35-minute walk, but only a seven-minute drive. Did Tina decide to hitchhike and was picked up by the killer? Instead of taking her to her friend's house to spend the night, he could have drove her to the lakefront, tried assaulting her, and ended up murdering her in a fit of rage. Looking at Google Maps and not knowing the exact address on either Washington Avenue or Virginia Street, it did appear that Virginia and Washington do intersect. That would be about one and a half miles away, or a half hour walk. But it would also be a quick five minute car ride if she decided to hitchhike. But it's also west of her friend's house on Quincy. Tina's body was discarded on the beach of Lake Michigan, which is east of Quincy Avenue. So if Tina did get picked up by the killer and he started driving the opposite way, she would have known right away. But what about the ice cream shop on Durand Avenue? Durand Avenue is south of Quincy and 20th Street. It's hard to know where the exact uh, location is of the ice cream shop in 1973, but there is a Dairy Queen that's been there for as long as I can remember. It's actually known for being a long-standing ice cream shop. So... If that was the ice cream shop, then it was only about a half-hour walk there from Quincy, or a five-minute drive. Could Tina have been picked up by the killer while hitchhiking, taken to the ice cream shop for a snack before going over to Virginia Street? Uh, It's entirely possible. This is purely speculation, of course, but it's possible that the man she was seen with uh, picked her up offered to get her some ice cream, tried making sexual advances on Tina, and when Tina refused, he lashed out in a fit of rage. But who was this man? I'll have some details I'll be covering in a later episode. I wrote his name down first on my suspect list. I found out that the admin of the Facebook group was also the man who wrote the article on V Industries and shares the article every year on the anniversary of her death. He reached out to me on Facebook Messenger. He asked if I saw the discussion. He said this was the first time he ever saw anyone name any names of possible suspects. He asked if I saw the post by a man who started very descriptively naming names of suspects. He said the post got so heated that he had to disable commenting and actually deleted a few comments. I won't name any of the suspects named on the Facebook group because I believe everyone is innocent until proven guilty. And many of the people named are local to Racine, the town that I live in. I've added them to the suspect list and will investigate them, but I also won't falsely accuse anyone or name anyone who hasn't already been convicted of murder. The more I dig into this case, the more questions I have. For the next episode, I will be visiting the Racine Police Department to see if I can speak to anyone regarding the cold case. I'll be visiting the news archives of the 
Journal Times, which is the local racing newspaper. I'll be visiting the locations I mentioned earlier to get a better visual of everything. 20th Street, Quincy Avenue, Virginia Street, the Rocky Beach off of Main Street. I want to see everything for myself. I want to get an idea of everything. I, I can get an idea by reading and looking at maps, but I really need to see everything for myself. Once again, if you knew Tina or have any tips or clues regarding her unsolved murder, please contact me at info at searchingforclosure.com or participate in our Facebook group. Just search Facebook for searchingforclosure.com, the Tina Davison Cold Case Podcast. As always, every time I post a new episode, I also post a new blog entry with notes, pictures, or videos, which you can find at www.searchingforclosure.com. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes and spread the word on Tina. Her case has remained unsolved for 45 years and deserves closure. Until next time, thank you for listening.